Father, it is such a joy to be able to declare the name of Jesus again and again in worship. That you, you Jesus, are our God and our King, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Healer. You are our peace. You are our life. All these things, it's you and you alone. And we, we acknowledge you in those ways, Lord. Not only in song, but also in the authority, Lord, of your word. Things that you declare are truth. The things that you declare are right. And they're power. And so, Father, I simply ask that you would just continue to meet and minister and draw our hearts to you through your word, as you did through the worship. Knit us, Lord, into that power, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. All right, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We've gone through and we've been seeing here the, the, the signs that Jesus has done. And after he goes and he witnesses to the Samaritans after he speaks to that woman at the well. He then goes, and as we looked last week, he healed the nobleman's son, which, of course, was the second sign that he did. Now as we move into chapter 5, it begins this, after this, which is after the healing of the nobleman's son, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's interesting that there's this trying to figure out what is this feast that is going on. And to be honest with you, that there is no one scholar that has it down pat. There's guesswork at best. Now, we know he had just been to the Passover, so there are some who say, well, this next feast could be the Feast of Pentecost. There are others who were saying, well, what John was doing is he was going from Passover to Passover to Passover. So which this feast is, we do not know. Um, my thought, and this is only my thought, this is thus saith the Lowell, not thus saith the Lord. My thought is it just continues over and it's Pentecost. It's a work that Jesus is doing, and it's it's quicker. Now, Pentecost, of course, is that celebration of, of the giving of the law. It's, it's that beautiful thing about just that relations. This is where the, the Spirit was given there in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. This is where God gives a new heart. He gives a new mind. He gives this, this new understanding to who we are. But that's just, like I said, it's my thought. I lean towards that. I'm not dogmatic about it. But what you can be dogmatic is this. There's a feast of the Jews. This is where all the Jews will then come to Jerusalem. Just highlight that. There's a feast. Anyone wants to tell you what it is, don't argue with them, but understand um, there are good men of God who disagree, and they disagree agreeably. So I would just kind of just stick to, to that, you know, um, line. We know there's a feast of Jews, and what Jesus does is this, and this is what's important. Within this feast, he now leaves Galilee and he comes down to Jerusalem. Now, of course, in the sixth chapter, he's going to leave Jerusalem and go back to Galilee. So we're going to see how he does these signs both in Jerusalem and in 
this area of Galilee. Now, uniquely, he goes to the temple on the Passover. He clears it out, cleans it out, drives the people out. And, and so he, again, at that point, establishes his authority. And as he comes back to Jerusalem again, once again, we're going to see how he establishes his authority in a different way. One, he did it over the temple. He did it over his house. He did it over the, that works of religion versus relationship. You've made my father's house, which should be a house of worship, a house of prayer, a house of the, 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 the nations. You've made it into a den of thieves. And the same thing he's going to do trying to let the people of Israel know that it isn't about the rules, it isn't about the regulations, it isn't about the traditions, it is about a relationship with God, and that's what he wants to establish. Now understand what begins to happen. When Jesus will heal this man, it is going to say in our text that it is there on the Sabbath day. And within that, understand what begins to happen is that they have a tradition of what can be done on the Sabbath. It's not God's law, it's man's tradition. And so I want you to understand what begins to happen because in verse 9 of John 5, it does declare this, and immediately the man was made well, he took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Now, keep in mind, as Jesus now comes to this feast in Jerusalem, he could heal this man the day before the Sabbath. He could heal this man the day after the Sabbath. He chooses to use this point in the traditions of the religious leaders. He chooses to use this tradition as a point to really show it is not about your rules and regulations. It's not about the burdens you're putting on the people. It is about a true and intimate relationship with God. So, as Jesus is here again in verse 1, after this, after the healing of the nobleman's son there in chapter 4, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, keep in mind that I'll He's in Galilee. He's going south. Now, when we go up north, we always say it's up north. And here he's going up to Jerusalem. Now, why is Jerusalem up to Jerusalem when it's south? Keep in mind the elevation of Jerusalem. You always go up. Jerusalem always the high point. So you, you're, he's not going north like we would say we're going up north. He's going up to Jerusalem. And that just means that he's going up to the elevation, which is Jerusalem. So he's heading down south to Jerusalem, to the mountain there on Jerusalem. And so he's going up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, Bethesda which having five porches. So at this point, we see now that there is this sheep gate spoken of there by Nehemiah. It's been excavated. We know it's on the north side of the Temple Mount. And of course, they have in their excavations understanding that there are five porches. There are five areas in where men would, would assemble. Now, the gate pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, the term of it, Beth, means house, like Bethlehem, house of bread. So Beth means house, and Aseda 
is the house of kindness. So we understand that this term, he goes to the pool, which is called Bethesda, which is the house of kindness. This porch has, or this pool has five porches. Um, they've talked about the pillars that are around it, holding up, bringing shadows to the people who were there. And in verse 3, it makes this statement, in these, in these porches lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the movement of the water. Within this pool, we see here that there is this group of people that have flocked to this pool. And it says very cleanly in verse 3, in these lay a great multitude. I want you to, if you're a highlighter, a note taker, underline that, mark that, make that clear in your Bible that there is a great multitude. And the reason that I want you to understand that and mark that and, and really have that stand out to you, because what does Jesus do when people bring multitudes to him? He heals them. When they brought great multitudes, he'd stay up all night healing the multitudes. He'd be casting out the demons and making them well of whatever they had. And here we see there's another great multitude. And it's interesting that Jesus has the ability to heal the multitude. He's done it before. He could do it now. He could just simply go and touch everyone. He knows what, what everyone has. He's God. He understands what's happened, and he could literally go through and he could heal every one of them. But it's interesting, he does not do that. In verse 5 and 6, it says, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? He didn't, he didn't stand up in the multitude. Do you want to be? No, he goes to one man. Now, it's interesting, why does Jesus bypass this multitude in need and go to only one man? Well, the answer is found there in verse 3 at the end and in verse 4. Now, some Bibles will not have this next section that I'm going to read. Some Bibles in the older manuscripts this portion is omitted. In other words, manuscripts, manuscripts older than 400 AD don't, don't have it in it. And yet we see here that there are some that were actually putting this in. Whether they put that in as a, like a commentary to why the multitudes gathered at the porch, that it became this verbal tradition, we do understand that there is this multitude. We do understand that within this multitude, it says this of them in verse 3. They are sick people. None of them are well. They are the blind. They are the lame. They are the paralyzed, the, the withered. And they're waiting, and this is where this portion of Scripture is often admitted in some Scriptures or if you have a study Bible, it's going to say, well, it, it's here, but it, it's omitted in, in a lot of the other 
older manuscripts. And so this point waiting for the moving of the water, in verse 4, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. We begin to see here that there is a very clear understanding to why Jesus doesn't come and heal this multitude. Because this multitude is there ready to heal themselves. There's a contest. There's a competition. And and if I'm good enough, if I'm quick enough, if I'm the first one in, when that water stirs, if I touch it, I know I will be healed. And it's interesting that they're not looking to a point where they're thinking, I am beyond myself. I am hopeless. I am helpless. Do you understand that when we come to this point, recognize that we're spiritually bankrupt, we're saying what? God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. However, if there's an inkling of, I can do this on my own, you know what God will do? Good luck with it. Eventually, you're going to realize what? Without God, you can do nothing. But it's interesting that what happens here is there's this multitude that's all trying to do what they can. And yet the scripture tells us what this multitude is. They are sick. They are blind. They are lame. They are paralyzed. They are basically, they cannot see They are not well, they have no strength, they are impotent, but yet in their hearts and in their minds, they say what? Oh, I can do this. You understand the reason why the Lord bypasses the multitude is because they're all going to do it themselves. And when it comes to this water, it's said that they were waiting for the moving of the water. And the tradition, the history in verse 4 said, an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now understand that this isn't the first time that someone believed that water could cure them. It isn't the first time that someone actually believed if I go into the water, I'll be made well. If you're familiar with that passage there in 2 Kings chapter 5, there is a man by the name of Naaman. Naaman is a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He's a great and honorable man in the eyes of the master. And it says that he was also this mighty man of valor. However, there is this little tag on the end. It says, but he was a leper. And what Naaman chose to do was say, hey, I want to be healed. Now, amazingly, Naaman had this servant girl of Israel. And rather than her being bitter because she was a servant to Naaman the Syrian, she says, oh, my goodness, you know what? There is in Israel a prophet who can heal my master. 
And so the king of Syria writes the king of Israel, says, hey, I'm sending my man to you. Name him, heal him. <laughs> the king of Israel, he's just, just, just blown away. He tears his clothes. Says, what, am I God? Am I God that I can kill and make alive, that I can heal this man of his leprosy? He goes, I want you to understand, he's trying to pick a fight with me. That's what he's doing. And eventually, as the prophet comes, Elisha says to the king, send him down to me. Send him down to where I'm at. Elisha sends out his servant. And his servant says, I want you to go. This is what master says, just dunk in the Jordan seven times. Go in the water. So all you have to do is go in the water. And he's mad. He's angry. But eventually what happens is this. His servant talks to him. And then in verse 14, he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Water can heal when God tells you go in the water. But there's also a unique thing about actuating faith. And I want to take you to a couple passages because it's important for us to gravitate that there are certain times where God is going to put in us, if such a thing happens, in other words, if I'm sick and I go to the elders and they anoint me with oil and lay hands on me, as the, the scriptures in James says, I'll be made well. I'll be made whole. Now, I know you guys are familiar with this, but I want to share with you a passage found in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, the chapter opens up towards that middle where there's this young girl that needs to be healed. And in the midst of Jesus going to this man's house, to heal the daughter. It opens up in Matthew 9, beginning in verse 20 through 22, and suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he had saw her, he said, be of good cheer, Daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. You understand? She says, if I only touch the hem, if I can touch, if, if I can touch, it's going to actuate the faith that's going to bring about the healing. In the book of Acts, there's two portions of scripture I want you to be aware of. The first is found in Acts chapter 5, verse 15. In Acts 5.15, it begins talking about Peter and the ministry that he does, the miracles that begin to happen. But in verse 15 of Acts 5, it makes this statement. Well, back to verse 14. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. You understand that at this point, they're getting people who are lame. 
They are getting people who are sick, hoping that the shadow of Peter will pass by them. And if the very shadow of Peter passes by, they recognize that there will be a healing. Later on in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 11 and 12, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. You understand that Paul's sweatbands, his sweaty little handkerchiefs, that he would wipe the sweat out, if that would touch someone, they would be healed. So I want you to understand that a lot of times what happens is this, that there's a point of man that God establishes this point where there's an actuation to faith. It doesn't have to have a lot of faith. It doesn't even have to have a lot of merit, but there's an activation an act where, where faith is activated. And these people that were there believed that when the water stirred, their belief was that an angel came down and stirred it. So when the water bubbled, there was bubbling that came up from this pool. They believed it was an angel that stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first, whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, this tells me a couple of things. That one, this had to have happened at least once, or someone believed it happened at least once, that the word got out. Now understand, if there's a word that gets out that this brings about a healing, then initially what? Well, people flock to it. Until what? Until either a new healing comes out or they realize, well, it doesn't do what it was supposed to do to me. And so I don't know if you are ever one who follows health trends, where all of a sudden it's where here, here's this miracle Thing that comes from this root of this plant and it brings about this healing. And, and, and I'm sure that there's some truth to these things. I know that God allowed medicinal work through plants. But so often we think, what, this is the miracle pill. This is the miracle thing. And this water, this pool, I do believe that there were certain people that were touched, their faith was actuated, and they were healed. So much so that this multitude is lying there, that when the water is stirred, that the key is, is what is to have friends, to have friends that when the water is there, they're all looking. So if you're distracted, you got two friends looking, or you take turns, or, or that when you blink, you know, someone else doesn't step in, oh man, I missed it but you get friends to chuck you in the pool as soon as the bubbling happens. Like, I saw it, I saw it, you know? And this is what's happening. And now with the multitude of people who were trying to do it themselves was one man. And I want you to understand what this one man, what his plight was. It begins this in verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. 38 years. Now something about this infirmity I want you to understand 
was a result of something that he did in his life was a result of sin. Now, not all things that happen are a result of sin. Like the man who was born blind, the disciples, hey, who sinned, this man or his father? He was born blind. Neither, neither. And it wasn't for the glory of God. But there are certain times that certain sins will bring about certain circumstances. So I want you to see that in verse 14 of John chapter 5, it does make this statement. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So this is an understanding that this man did something and this sin caused this repercussion. This was a fruit of sin. This was the the wages of sin. And through that sin, there was this paralyzing that happened to him. There was this man who had an infirmity for 38 years. I want to share with you just one portion. Don't turn there, but jot it down just so that you have this for your reference. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, it does make this statement where it says this, And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp just as the Lord had sworn to them. It was understand that we see that God had said, you're going to wander for 40 years. 40 years is going to be the total number of years. <coughs> but what we see is that the actual penalty in verse 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 2 says that the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp. It's unique that there was a consequences of 38 years pointed out. And here we see that once again, because of the consequences of sin, there is this penalty of 38 years. There's a tie in here, but what I want to focus on here at this point is that this man here becomes a type. And after 38 years of having this affirmity, Jesus now locates this one man. And in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? I want you to notice something that's very, very important. In all the preceding chapters and all the preceding events of healing, the people came to Jesus. The nobleman came to Jesus. The people came to Jesus. This man wasn't there waiting for Jesus. He wasn't there waiting in the temple to hear the name of Jesus to cry out. He wasn't looking for Jesus. 
but I want you to note something. Jesus was looking for him. You have to understand that, that so often we think that the faith that we have is, is how much gusto that we take going to Jesus, crying out, Jesus, Jesus, and the multitude saying, no, quiet down, quiet down, and then yelling even more, Jesus. But we begin to see here that Jesus is the one who seeks out this man. Jesus saw him lying there. He knew his condition. He knew he'd already been there a long time. Scripture says 38 years. And Jesus asked him this question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made whole? It's a great question. Now, you would think it's a no-brainer, right? He's sitting there in the pool of Bethesda. He's waiting, hoping that, that the water stirs. And somebody says, hey, look at that. The water stirs. And he manages to get there. But that doesn't happen. This man finds himself 38 years in this condition, 38 years with this infirmity, and he makes this statement, there's no one there to help him. I don't know. I don't know what happened to his parents. I don't know what happened to his friends. I don't know anything. I don't know how he got there, but I do know this. That in this state, he says, I have no one. I cannot help myself. Perfect. When you cannot help yourself, when you come to the end, it has been said like this, that men's extremities are God's opportunities. When you come to the end where you can do nothing, then God can do everything. But you got to come to the point where you can do nothing. How often do we get to the point and say, but there's something I can do. No, there's nothing you can do. So often we try to think, if I could only say this, if I could only do this, if I can only accomplish this, then these other things will happen. You can't do anything. Now, God can do everything. Just say, Lord, I can do nothing, but I can put it in your hands. That's the one thing I can do. I can put it into your hands. And this man realizes there's nothing that he can do. So Jesus now comes to him. And he asks him the question, do you want to be made well? I want you to understand that the same voice that said, let there be light in Genesis 1, and there was light, is the same voice that's asking this man, do you want to be made well? The word of God is spoken. And this man, rather than saying, sure, of course, why do you think I'm here? He asks this question, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered. Now understand that what happens is he's one of those great multitudes in verse 4 of the sick people. He has an infirmity. He is to the point where he cannot walk because of his sin. And he says, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And so we begin to see here, he's like, I need you to throw me into the water when it moves. 
You understand how he's limiting what Jesus can do by his own understanding of how people are healed, of how he expects to be healed. He can't imagine God doing something else because it's already in his mind. And how many times do we limit God by saying, God, do whatever you're going to do and do it in the way that is your style, rather than saying, God, I need you to do this, and then I need you to do this, and I need you to do this, because that's how I would do it, and that's how the other people are doing it. So I need you to do it like they do it. And guess what? It hasn't worked yet. So why are you still thinking this is the way to do it? Now, I love the fact that here he comes and he says, listen, I'm trusting in how men are doing it. And I need to rely on some kind of man to help me along with it. Jesus isn't needing men's ways. And Jesus isn't just a man. He's God. And at this point where he calls him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when I'm coming, the water stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps into the pool before me. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. This voice that said, let there be light. Do you want to be made well? Now says, rise. And you know what this guy does? He rises. He just gets up. He takes up his bed and he walks. This is the key. And when Jesus, the word of God, says, rise, take up your bed and walk, he doesn't say, get into the water, get ready. I see an angel coming. As soon as it does, I'll shove you in, or I'll, you know, I'll pick you up. I'll walk in with you. He doesn't do that. He just says, why are you bothering with this? Rise. Just rise. Bypass all of the traditions. Bypass all of what men are wanting. Bypass all that what men are thinking, what all that men are believing in, what all that men are doing. Bypass that and listen to me. Receive my words. Isn't that amazing? So often we hear the words of men on how we need to get right with God. And Jesus simply says this, believe. Believe on him whom he sent. Just believe on me. This is it. And it's so amazing that when Jesus speaks the words to this man, in the same way that he spoke there to Lazarus, where he said, Lazarus, come forth. What happened? Lazarus, who'd been dead for four days, came forth. He says, hey, take the, 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 the grave clothes off of the guy. But I love the heart that what Jesus does, he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And verse 9 declares this, and immediately the man was made well. The scripture should better be translated, immediately the man was made whole. He took up his bed, he walked, and that day was the Sabbath. I want to share with you one portion of scripture found in the book of Isaiah chapter 35. I want to read to you verses 3 through 7, just so that you can understand who this is who told the man, rise, take up your bed and walk. 
And Isaiah chapter 35 talks about the coming kingdom. It says this. At the end of verse 2, it says, they shall see the glory of God, the excellency of our God. They're going to see God's glory. And how is it defined? Well, Isaiah 35 verse 3 says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Life is coming where there is no life. And this is what Jesus does. He brings life to eyes that do not see, life to ears that do not hear, life to the lame that they will leap like a deer, life to a tongue, life to what is dried up and dead. And understand, you want life? Come to Jesus. Don't, don't try to figure out what men say is the way to life, what these new fads are to this is what is the key to life. Come to Jesus. And then you will experience true life. You'll experience a relationship with God. And I think it's so important that we see here that Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. Verse 9, immediately the man was made well or whole. He took up his bed and he walked. Now, what's interesting is this. We're going to see in just a moment how the Pharisees would come to this point of saying, you cannot carry a burden. And this little tiny cloth mat that you're laying on, now keep in mind, he wasn't bringing, you know, the, this sort of mattress along with him. It was just a little roll-up cloth. And it was like, well, I could, now the Pharisees, leave it there. Leave it there till after the Sabbath. Well, it's the only possession I own. If you want someone to steal it, you want me to leave it there? I'm now leaving it there. I don't need to lay on it anymore. I've been commanded to rise and walk. I'm leaving here. I'm not just walking in a circle on this little mat. I'm taking it with me. That's what this man said. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And we begin to see he immediately takes up his bed. He's been made well, took up his bed, he walked that day was the Sabbath. Now verse 10. As we initially saw here, the multitude that were there, the one man that Jesus identifies, the master coming and saying, listen, I'm going to speak this word that's going to allow this a miracle to happen. And then we see here the Jews. The Jews. It's the same Jews that were sent to John the Baptist. It's the same Jews that were trying to say, hey, what's going on here? And so understand that we begin to note that what happens is these Jews are the ones that are sent 
by the Levites. Let me share with you one portion in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And of course, there he confesses, and he does not deny, but confesses, I'm not the Christ. These are the religious leaders. And so what John will do is he will call them the Jews. Now, he's not saying all the Jews, but when he does make this term the Jews, he is referring to the religious leaders, the rulers, the elders of the Jews, the Pharisees. He's referring to those. And the Jews, the religious leaders, therefore said to him, this man who had taken up his bed and was walking, they said, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. You're breaking one of our rules. Now understand that there was a direction that God had given as far as the Sabbath. Now, the key to the Sabbath, the key to, if you want to understand what the Sabbath word was and why God had instituted it, there's a passage in Nehemiah chapter 13. I want to read to you verse 15. Nehemiah says this about the Sabbath. It says this, in those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. In other words, what they were doing is this. The Sabbath was not meant for you to do nothing on if something was there. Now remember, if you had a donkey or an ox or something fell into a ditch on a Sabbath, what could you do? You could help it out. And so you could do some things on the Sabbath. Why? Well, what did the priest do? The priest went in intended to the implementations there making sure the, the lamps would not go out and they would fill it with oil. They would do it on what? They would do it on the Sabbath. And they would offer sacrifices on the Sabbath. But the Sabbath was not meant so that people could do work on the Sabbath. That was what God tried to say. Stop working. Cease trying to make money. Just rest in me on this day. Now, I want you to understand that the Jews got so far into this that they would even have debates on if you had false teeth, could you wear them on the Sabbath because you're carrying a burden? Could you imagine that every seventh day you had a gum stuffed because you weren't allowed because some priest said it's a burden? And so there were certain things that you could do and certain things that you couldn't do it's amazing that when you go to Jerusalem, and so I was in this hotel, and it was interesting that there was one elevator that was considered a Sabbath elevator and another that was not considered a Sabbath elevator. Now, what was a Sabbath elevator? A Sabbath elevator 
would be consistent. It would go to every single floor. It would go from floor one to floor two to floor three to floor four to the top and then back down one floor at a time. And it would be there constantly and no one would have to push a button. But you had to wait for it. Rather than just saying, oh, I see the elevators there on, on three and just pushing a button and, and having it come up to your floor and then going down to verse one or going down to floor one, the, the Sabbath elevator, because if you pushed a button, it was a burden. You couldn't push a button. There was a group of Jews that literally was talking to a rabbi because their loft was on fire. And they asked the rabbi, is it okay for us to pick up a receiver on a phone and dial the fire department? Is that work? And by the time that they had the discussion, it took them a couple hours to determine whether it could be done, the fire had spread and two more buildings engulfed in flame before the fire department was called. All because these are the rules of the Sabbath. It's incredible to see that here, they're, they're not looking at this man and saying, why are you carrying this? They're just saying, you cannot do it. It's not lawful for you. Now, keep in mind, it wasn't a transgression of God's commandment. It was a transgression of their interpretation of God's commandment. He wasn't carrying this to market to sell it. He was bringing it with him so it wouldn't be stolen or left behind. It was his possession. And so he wasn't there to market it. He wasn't there to sell it. He was just there saying, hey, I was told to walk. And as he's walking, they're saying, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, he who made me well, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, I love what he does. He's already deflecting to Jesus. <laughs> He's like, it's, it, don't look at me. The guy who made me well said it. And I love the fact that what he's doing is, and he doesn't realize it, I think, but he's hiding behind Jesus already. He's already saying, listen, I'm going to hide behind this man. I'm going to hide behind his words. He still doesn't know who he is. He only knows him as sir. But yet the power of those words that he didn't ask him, who are you? He just literally took up his bed and walked. Now understand how Jesus, when he said it, He's gone. He's not looking for the other people to, to look and say, who had it? What happened? What's going on here? Jesus tells the man, and immediately he's made whole, and you don't hear of Jesus anymore. He's out of the picture. He simply says a word and moves on. And again, no one recognizes who did the miracle, but this man realizes it's a miracle. But he says, listen, the, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they said to him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn the multitude, had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. He didn't want the multitude flogging him. He didn't want the multitude coming around him. It's absolutely incredible 
that this man receives a healing, receives a word, receives power, and still has no idea who to give credit to. But I don't want you to think he's, he's too bad yet because there's a really good point that begins to happen here, and I love the, the heart of what it's going to be, what we're going to see here. Because in verse 14, what does it say? It says, after Jesus found him in the temple. See, he did know where to go. He's looking to glorify God. He just doesn't know that Jesus is the God that he's going to glorify. And I love the heart of it because they, this, this, he says, well, who is the man who said, take up your bed and walk? And the one who was healed did not know who it was. Jesus had withdrawn. And I love the fact that Jesus is not after a following. He knows the hearts of men. He's not after fickleness. And all these men, the multitude, were saying, I can do this. I don't need anyone, I, or I already have my friends to help me out here. I am good on my own. This man was helpless. Jesus knew he was helpless and came to him. He said, do you want wholeness? Do you want healing? Well, as he's there, he doesn't know. Jesus had withdrawn, verse 13, a multitude being in that place, and now verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. And then the Lord says this, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. For 38 years, this man's had an infirmity. For 38 years, I don't know how many people he told why he had that infirmity. Most of us don't say it's sin. Jesus knew what it was. Jesus knew this man. He knew his lifestyle. And he says, listen, you need to turn from that. You need to flee from that, lest a worse thing come upon you. And it's so important to recognize that there's this Proverb, in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 9, it makes this statement, Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is favor. When you think, oh, there's going to be no consequences to sin, I can sin, and, and there's going to be no issue with God. I've been sinning this sin for a long time, and God still hasn't stopped me. God still hasn't intervened. Well, keep in mind that God is not deceived. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you are going to reap. And when you sow to the wind, you're going to weep the whirlwind. You sow to the spirit, you're going to reap everlasting life. And here, the man had sown and he reaped. And Jesus comes, and what Jesus wants to do is this. He doesn't want to heal the man just physically, he wants to bring the man in the right place spiritually. He says, now I've, I've done the physical part. I need to do the spiritual part. You need to turn from sin. And so there's a greater conversation that happens here because in verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Now this man is both lauded and faulted, depending upon who you read. There are some commentators who say that this man 
instantly is so afraid of the religious leaders that he goes and tells them, it was Jesus. Don't, don't, don't punish me. It was Jesus. That's the guy you're looking for. He was using Jesus as a scapegoat. But I want you to understand that Scripture doesn't say that, nor does it imply it. As a matter of fact, it implies the opposite. Notice what this man says. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus, and he says, not who told him to pick up his bed. It was Jesus who made him whole. It was Jesus who made him well. I love the fact that what he's doing is he's witnessing Jesus' work. I want to tell you, it was Jesus made me well. Jesus made me well. Jesus, I'm walking because of Jesus. And it's interesting, how many Sabbath days or days that weren't on the Sabbath did these religious leaders see men in need and do nothing because they could do nothing? How many blind men did they pass? Not opening their eyes. How many deaf men did they pass? Not opening, not even on a, uh, take a day that's not on the Sabbath. How many withered hands did they open? How many laymen did they heal? How many sick people there in the pool of Bethesda of the multitudes did they touch? The answer is none. And it's interesting that what happens is this, is they're now so indignant that one man would make another well on the Sabbath, that this is their heart. In John 5, verse 16, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. I wonder if there's a commandment like that. Like, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder. But yet, what are they doing? They're seeking to murder. They're seeking to kill. They're worried about a man carrying a bedroll, a little piece of cloth, and they have no concerns of their heart wanting to kill Jesus Christ. I find it interesting how they're swallowing it in gnats, you know, and, 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 and yet they're, they're, they're consuming, you know, the, this massive amount of sin. And so they're looking at this little tiny thing this man did that was against their traditions. Now, look to Scripture to say whether these things are so. But they literally had elevated their traditions to the point of Scripture, and they literally say, these are the commandments. You cannot break those. So for the, this reason, verse 16, the Jews persecuted Jesus, sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, he had done what? Well, he healed this man on the Sabbath, but another thing he did was what? He took the money changers, cleansed out the temple. He did that on the Sabbath. It was God's house. And yet they had no problem, people there bringing in sheep and hanging on to ropes and trading in money and bringing money bags, that wasn't a problem. But this man, when he's doing one thing out of the ordinary, they persecute him, and now they're seeking to persecute Jesus. And all this man did was witness of the work of Jesus. And so, now verse 17. 
Jesus comes in their way of persecuting him. Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Jesus here helped them out. When they said, listen, you broke the Sabbath. He said, listen, guys, guys, I'm the one who spoke the words. I know what they meant. I'm the one who dictated these words. I scrolled them on the tablet. I know what they mean. You guys are in error. And so as he's saying, listen, you got to understand who I am. And I love the fact that he says, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. The God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. This is, this is God. And so he, he doesn't have to stop. He said, I haven't stopped working. He said, my father has been working until now. Do you think that God stops working on the Sabbath? No, he stopped creating on the Sabbath so that he could teach us a valuable lesson. There's rest. There's rest to be found, but that rest is what? It's not found in working harder. It's in ceasing your work and then trusting that it is accomplished. And this is what we do. We cease the work trying to get right with God. We're trusting that it's accomplished. Jesus is the Sabbath. We trust in him. But he says, my father has been working till now, and I have been working. Now he says, my father. He puts himself as equality. No, no, not, not God has been, but my father has been working, and I have been working. He puts himself as a point of equality. We are the same in nature. We are the same in, in who we are. My father and I are both one. And when the father directs me and proves to you that his heart was there through what the healing that took place, you want to see signs and wonders. You've been asking for that, but yet what happens? When there is this sign that says, what I believe needs to be brought back to what scripture teaches, we get upset. Like, no, what I believe is what I believe. I don't have to lean to Scripture. Scripture has to change, not me. And yet, this is where they were. And I find it so amazing that what we see here is that, that Jesus says, no, no, the Father's working, and I'm working. There's a passage in Amos 3.3. Just jot it down. You can check it out later, but it simply says this, can two walk together unless they're agreed? The Father and the Son have been working until now, and they're in agreement. And so we see that because he confessed the Father, and the Father was working, trying to teach them about their traditions being an heir, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, now that was already worthy of death, but now they want to kill him even more because he said that God was his father. God was his father, making himself equal with God. It's amazing that here Jesus breaks their regulations. Jesus breaks their expectations. 
And when the Messiah comes, they're thinking, you can't be the Messiah because you're not how I picture you. And isn't it amazing that they have this preconceived idea of who Jesus is and how Jesus will work. And when he comes and he does something different, rather than believing that here's a man who has been with an infirmity for 38 years, now walking, all of a sudden, what are they doing? They're wanting to, what, snuff out the man who did the miracle. They still can't see the power behind the words. And yet Jesus here, in the same words that said, let there be light, the same words that said, rise, take up your bed, that same one is saying, my father's been working until now, and I've been working. You understand? He's speaking of the same nature. We are doing this together. What you see me do, like you told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the heart that Jesus is trying to portray. And so it's such a beautiful passage that we begin to see. And I want you to understand how important this work is that Jesus is doing. It's one of those things where you have to understand that if you're at that place where you think, you know what? I can do this on my own. I don't need God. I, could, I need some friends. I need this. I need that. But if you're thinking you can do this on your own, guess what? God's going to let you try. And he's going to let you try and try and try until you finally come to the point of doing what? Giving up. Giving up, realizing I can't do this on my own. So may we be those people who come to the point of realizing, Lord, without you, I can do nothing. So grateful, though, that if I'm not coming to you, you and your grace will still come to me. That was my salvation. I, I thought I came to him. I thought I came to him. Like, oh, I know, I know. I, I called upon his name. I said a prayer. He was chasing after me and chasing after me and chasing after me, finally cornering me. He says, will you call me? Absolutely. Do you want to be made whole? Absolutely. And I had no idea how to do it until someone simply said, just trust his work, trust his word, trust who he is and what he says, believe it, and you will be made whole. May that be our lives, amen? Father, we are so grateful for this passage for your word, and we do ask, Lord, that you, through your grace and your spirit, would empower us to truly call on you, Jesus. Call on you, not to be able to, to believe that we think we can do it ourselves or to find out there's another way that we could find healing and wholeness and, 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 and being made well. It is only through you, only through your words, submission to you, knowing that we're broken, knowing that we have no hope outside of you. So, Father, we ask that you would do the work. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen.